0: NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio. Welcome to this first author conversation for the 2021 Marginal Syllabus. The Marginal Syllabus, of course, is a project that convenes and sustains equity conversations in the margins of texts online using the social annotation tool hypothesis. I'm Joe Dillon from the Denver Writing Project. I teach English at Gateway High School in Aurora, Colorado, and I'll be your host for the conversation. We've got a terrific panel assembled here today to discuss this month's reading, which is titled Brown Girls Dreaming, Adolescent Black Girls Future-Making Through Multimodal Representations of Race, Gender, and Career Aspirations. So I'd like to ask our guests to introduce ourselves. And we'll hear first from our authors, who we're so excited to have as part of this conversation.
1: Thanks so much, Joe. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Turner. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland. I teach uh, pre-service literacy methods courses for our elementary education program, as well as graduate courses, uh, particularly qualitative research and uh, several literacy related doctoral courses as well. And I'm very glad to be here today.
2: Thanks for the intro, Joe. My name is Autumn Griffin. I am a postdoctoral research fellow on the Digital Discourse Project in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not currently teaching, but in the past have taught classes related to children's literature um, and equity in education. Uh, And I am excited to be here as well.
3: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Angela Crawford. I am a teacher here in Philadelphia. I teach um, a dual enrollment English class through Harrisburg University. Um, I also teach three English fours and two English three classes. Um, And I'm also part of the digital discourse um, study. And uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
4: Hi, I'm, my name is Jen Henderson, and I am um, a high school teacher here in Aurora, Colorado. I teach um, uh, English language development literacy um, at the high school level 912, and I'm also um, one of the ELD instructional coaches, and I'm involved in the uh, digital discourse study as well.
5: Well, and greetings everyone. My name is Ramey Khalir. Uh, day-to-day, I'm an assistant professor of learning design and technology at the University of Colorado in Denver, um, and I'm also one of the co-founders and facilitators of the Marginal Syllabus Project. And I'm just so thrilled to have uh, everyone with us today, particularly this kind of collaborative crossover event with the Digital Discourse um, Project. So just w- welcome everyone. It's great to have everybody here.
0: Terrific, and thanks for everyone introducing yourselves and and as many of you noted, we've, we've recruited for this conversation from the Digital Discourse Project, which is something that's been caused for some of us on the call to uh, collaborate this year. And, and we're super excited to discuss the piece that brought us here today that was authored in, in part by Autumn, who we're meeting through the Digital Discourse Project. And so I think as a way of getting us into the piece, I'd like to invite both Jennifer and Autumn to really just give us an introduction to the to the research or the writing of the piece really anything you you think that would provide an important background for folks interested in this text.
1: Sure. Um, I just wanted to offer a few words of sort of opening up the space for for this particular piece, and then I'll pass it over to Autumn. Um, Before I was an academician at uh, University of Maryland. I was a college counselor, a college access counselor in uh, Philadelphia at my neighborhood high school, um, which I didn't go to, but was very familiar with. And I worked there for two years, and I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I love most about my job, because I wore many, many hats, as <laughs> Angie and Jen probably know, that you end up wearing many hats when you work in the in the district. Um, um, and it. it It really taught me though to listen to students and their aspirations. And so what I was doing was helping them think about college thinking about their post-secondary dreams and listening to those dreams um, every day and helping them pursue those dreams which I loved about the, the work that I did because I tend to think of counseling as Um, not as active, and I was very hands-on and needed to be because I was working with students down at the high, not only at the high school level, but at the feeder elementary and middle schools as well. Um, And so this was really a college readiness type of program where we were getting students interested. I was working with a a cohort of other folks in several other schools, um, and we were really interested in listening to children, getting them uh, Ready to think about and become more aware of college and careers in general, and then uh, helping them to pursue those aspirations. And so that feeling and that passion about aspirations is something that I think I brought to this particular piece. So when I met Tamika and Malia in 2012, I had started a study at our summer reading program. They were enrolled in our program, and I was doing a program on I was doing a project on literacy identities and I wanted them to draw a picture um, of themselves reading at home and reading at school and then for fun I wanted them to draw a picture of what they wanted to be when they grew up and like the other children Tamika Malia really got excited about the career drawing that was the one they talked most about that's the one that they spent the most time on they talked about the colors they would use they were just all in it and Tamika and Malia were a vibe. They were a total vibe. Like these were the two girls that by the time I was done, they were my helpers. They were cleaning up stuff. They were asking me questions about, um, you know, my job and what I did. They were just delightful. And so when I had a chance to reconnect with them uh, years later in 2018, I was wondering about them and particularly I was wondering number one were their career aspirations the same because I remembered Malia and her bold picture of wanting to be a veterinarian and then Tamika wanting to be a gym teacher so the first thing I thought of was well I wonder if these girls are still on the on these same tracks and pursuing these same career dreams at the same time I was reading and rereading uh, folks like Patricia Hill Collins and thinking about Black feminist thought and thinking about these girls in relation to um, the controlling images that we see that subjugate um, Black women and Black girls in particular. Um, And I was wondering how their uh, career aspirations were developing and in resistance to these kinds of images. Um, and and really, honestly, the limited futures that society projects onto Black girls. So there'll be welfare queens, they will be in videos, like a video of Vixen, they will be, you know, everything is limited, everything's tragic, everything's oppressed. And these are the futures that they're trying to write against these images. Um, and so I was wondering about them, what that looked like for them. So it was at that point that um, as I was, you know, gathering this space to work with them again, that I was so grateful to have Autumn come in. um, And we worked on this project together at that point with Tamika and Malia. um, And we were both fangirls of Jacqueline Woodson. And so we had also read um, Brown Girls Dreaming. So that became a point of convergence for us as well in terms of what it means to name your future um, and to then pursue that future. So I'll kind of stop there and let Autumn share, you know, what she brought to the project, but that's kind of where I came from in in coming to this writing space.
2: Thank you. So like Dr. Turner mentioned, uh, this was a collaborative work and I was really excited to be brought on. A lot of my work um, focuses on Black girlhood and what it means to Uh, what it means for Black girls to develop their identity, not just in the usual adolescent kind of years, but also specifically in terms of what it means for them in their Black girl bodies. Um, And so this project, when Dr. Turner brought it to me, I was like, absolutely, I want to join. And it was great because we were thinking about career, but also about the ways that for black girls, the future is really holistic, right? Like there's this, there's this aspect of what you want your career to be and how you're thinking about that um, and what society is telling you, but school is not the only place where you think about your career, right? Like there are these pour overs into music. Um, into your relationships with your friends and family. And so we had an opportunity to sit down with Tamika and Malia and ask them, what are some of the songs you're listening to? How are these songs driving how it is you see your future? Who are some of the people who help you to get to where you want to go and encourage you along the way? And so it was really interesting to think about this this holistic aspect of, of how they envision their careers.
0: Terrific, and uh, you know, just as a as you know, one of the questions that occurs to me um, just about the way you were able to revisit the two girls, right, through, through previous work that uh, that Jennifer had done with them, and it seemed like this time, introducing uh, you know, kind of a listening session, it seems to me, but you also introduced like some of those questions about media, etc. Maybe can you talk a little bit about um, about how you thought through the that revisiting with these two two young women and uh, kind of the media affordances that you um, brought to the second conversation.
1: Sure, I'll let um, Autumn because she really brought a lot of the digital literacy uh, piece to this because she had been um, working uh, with digital literacies. I um, I think when I thought about working with um, Tamika and Malia again, Um, there were a couple of things. One was that when they were younger, at the time of the first study, they were nine years old. I never really asked them about race and gender in particular. Um, I really did make the assumption that they wouldn't be able to talk um, very openly or explicitly about race and gender. And so I thought um, those were questions. I had them, of course, identify themselves, um, but not really go into depth about how might your race or your gender be shaping you know, your career aspirations at the time. So this time, I really wanted to be purposeful and intentional. And I think that the theoretical lens we brought with the Black girls' literacy, in particular, thinking about Goldie Mohammed and Marcel's work, Marcel Haddock's, um, Dieter Price-Dennis, uh, Elaine Richardson, these are folks that once we got into conversation with them um, in terms of their writing, it became clear that we needed to think about the intersectional um, identities that these girls were bringing to the space and to be very intentional about giving them this, both the multimodal space so that they could choose images, but also giving them that sort of verbal space to think about and articulate who they wanted to be and what that would look like in Black girl bodies. And so I think um, for me, that was one of the things that I almost wanted to correct, if you will, in a way. Um, the other thing is that I wanted to keep that energy and that fun. Um, the girls loved drawing that first time. I didn't think they would want to draw. And so this is where Autumn really came in because I was trying to figure out, well, if they, if I don't think they might want to draw at this point, what might they do? And so Autumn was working at that point with digital literacies and came up with the digital um, career collage idea, which really did expand their futurity and the way they looked and were oriented to the future because they could look and bring in their uh, wanting to have a partner and a family, for example, or thinking about college and these kinds of aspects would be very difficult to sketch or to draw in one particular space. And so I feel like what Autumn was bringing with the digital lens really helped to expand and gave them that Uh, artistic space, if you will, to actually bring forward and evoke many more ideas about their future than they had previously. And I think
2: when we were thinking about this piece, we were doing some reading about um, this idea of the digital divide and what Black students are often, quote unquote, not able to do. And as someone who was a middle school teacher and has worked in schools in some capacity ever since, I have seen the things <laughs> that kids are able to do on computers and cell phones, and that just isn't true. And so we were really interested in pushing back against that narrative that there is a digital divide for black kids and tapping into what is it that they are doing on their, on their devices. Uh, I think when thinking about the transferring from analog to digital, it was, like Dr. Turner said, really important for me to think about how they could create a collage. Because to some aspects, right, everyone's not, everyone's not a, an artist. <laughs> um, and so it can be hard sometimes to draw all of those images in. But when you bring in these multiple modes of communication, when you allow students to search for images on Google, which is also limiting to some extent, right, but it opens up more opportunity for them to imagine and dream uh, and to to create these larger futures, futures. I think what would, we did not print off the images, but I think it would even be interesting if we had the girls to print it to think about you know, the size of the, the eight by 11 piece of paper that maybe they started on, as opposed to what the size of this collage would be and how this, this being in the digital allowed for just the expansion for them to think more thoroughly about all of the different ways they saw their future. I think something else that was really interesting for us was when we talked about the collage, we didn't necessarily ask them to bring in these other aspects of life, right? We were still asking them about their career futures and to create a collage based on how they saw their career futures. That was total, we still had, you know, the idea to have them create playlists and to talk about these people in sort of an interview, but they brought in these images on their own, right? So the image of the church that you see, the image of partnership, those were all them. And so, it, it became really apparent that they're not just thinking about their careers in a vacuum and that the digital opens up space for them to, just possibility, right? For them to be able to think about all of these different connections between their career and the other aspects of their identity, their race, their gender, and how they see their futures.
0: Terrific. Thank you so much for that, that thorough introduction. I feel like, you know, you- we can appreciate now why our invited readers, Angie and Jen, are both so excited to talk about this text with you all and with us. And uh, before we get to a a more uh, informal discussion of the text with our readers, I'd like to invite rami to talk a little bit about the Marginal Syllabus Project to kind of explain um, what brings us all here in the first place, in addition to, of course, the text, which we're excited to talk about.
5: Yeah, well, and let me just say like with many of these partner author webinars, I'm already just kind of like floating in notes and so many things that have just, the wisdom is, is raining from the sky here. I um, and as a way of introducing the marginal syllabus, I think it's okay to just build upon some of the comments from our partner authors um, that are again, are just so so resonant for me already. Um, Autumn, you were just mentioning how, how the digital can open up spaces and possibilities. Um, and I certainly see that that is a, a motivator for, you know you so of course spoke specifically about a youth perspective and specifically about black youth we see in some ways a resonance space to do that same work with educators um, and similarly um, Dr. Turner-Jen a few moments ago um, you mentioned the importance specifically of, of again young women like Tamika and Malia of, of I think you said writing against certain um, futures and certain narratives um, that again are of course very harmful and again, the idea of authoring counter narratives is very resonant with the motivation of a project like the marginal syllabus that again, takes a, a, perhaps a similar stance towards work with educators. So I'll just briefly mention, you know, to build upon you know, those really uh, kind of foundational comments even in the beginning part of this conversation that the marginal syllabus has been trying to again open up those kinds of digital spaces and help off, uh, educators write those types of counter narratives for the past number of years now. Um, we, we began this project in 2016. Um, we've now grown into what some call a research practice partnership. Uh, we have long-standing partnerships with the National Writing Project, the National Council of Teachers of English, uh, the Technology Organization Hypothesis. And, you know, in short, we engage with authors, again, like, like Jen, like Autumn, to learn from their wisdom, to engage with readers, again, in this case, like Angie, and again, also uh, like, like Jen, um, who are in conversation with one another. And when that conversation occurs in digital spaces, we leverage a technology called social annotation where we read a text and then that text becomes a discursive context and it becomes a discursive context for these types of equity oriented conversations. And so again, over the past number of years now, we've engaged with well over 60 partner authors, 600 um, educators who have participated in this work um, and the conversations have been incorporated into teacher education classes, into professional learning opportunities, into a variety of K-12 and higher ed spaces. Um, And we're essentially offering these kind of marginal counter narratives to conventional professional development and trying to bring forth these more justice directed narratives about specifically literacy education. And again, it can only happen because we have partner authors and educators who are willing to have these deep consequential conversations, both in these webinar spaces, but then also again, through this kind of text-based annotation-based discourse that, that happens online. Um, and so we're just so thrilled to kick off the 2021 syllabus um, with this particular article about Black girls dreaming. Um, and I'm really looking forward to just kind of continuing to take some notes here today, sit back and just listen and learn from, from everyone who's here. So again, thank you so much to everyone who's joined us.
0: Thanks, Ramy. And so looks like Angie was getting a class started as we, as we were working. So uh, we have all of our Teachers present, and I know we all have a bunch of notes. I know I have, I've marked up my text pretty pretty well, but I want to give the floor over to Angie and Jen to just share some initial noticings from the from the article, or maybe uh, you know questions you might have for the authors, where, wherever you want to start. Okay.
3: Jen, do you want to go? Or you want me to start? Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. So for me, reading this. Um, brought back like some personal connections as once being um, a black girl dreaming, um, then being um, a teacher who, um, a teacher who teaches at Martin Luther King High School, which is a 100% African-American students, right? And then thinking about conversations with my girls, well, just not just my girls, but my kids in general, but in, in particular then thinking about girls and what aspirations, they choose to uh, think about and how limiting they are. But then on one hand, um, I'm saddened at the fact that if they don't have a teacher like me, who's gonna bring in Dr. Griffin in her class, cause she came to my class the last week, the week before, or bring in um, Zora Neale Hurston or bring in Toni Morrison or bring in any other um black woman writer where they can see themselves how do they know to aspire to look at anything else and i feel as though you know thinking about over the past few years in my building where i'm having like art i'm I'm not arguments but i feel like they're arguments because i got angry because people only want to like read like what we entitle as european canons and but how do you how do you teach only can't European canons in a school full of all black children? When do you ever pick up text that looks like the people that you know that you're teaching? So with that being said, I was just like, Where where does this take place at? How can how can this take place on a larger scale outside of my classroom or teachers who I know that value um black girl dreaming or just just value culturally responsiveness in in their in their teaching practices so that's kind of like where i was at and then i'm thinking back to even as a kid who liked to write and who liked to draw and who was kind of encouraged to do those things there weren't books like i i was a nancy drew girl because it was mysteries and growing up in the 70s who was I reading you know who was it going to be but I think that got balanced out with um my mother and my aunt like taking me to different cultural things so I'm able to see other black people like me so that's kind of where I'm at with it so far I'll let you go Jen
4: um yeah I think mine's gonna echo um a lot of What Angie was thinking as far as being an educator and, and the kids that um, sit in front of me every day at Aurora Central are, um, it's almost 100% of uh, kids of color, Um, 70% are language learners. And so thinking about reading this article and, and, and what these two how these two young girls think about their future and how that kind of progresses and how they're able to um, express those hopes and those dreams. And then thinking about as a teacher, like, where am I giving my kids that opportunity? Um, And not only that opportunity, but like the safe space to do that, because they may have the opportunity, but if they don't feel like it's a safe space to do that, they're still not going to take that on and so it was really um, like really on a personal side thinking about what does that look like in my classroom where am I where am I creating those opportunities Um, when Angie was talking about like the like those ideas around the curriculum and who are we teaching and whose voices are always rising to the top of especially our English curriculums and especially I feel like our advanced English curriculums and as high schools in Aurora, um, our district is adopting a new curriculum right now. And so thinking about that new curriculum with that lens and and what are those texts that this curriculum is putting in front of kids um, and what what visions is it, is it creating for our students and making sure like, um, not just our students, it shouldn't be like, one thing I was thinking about as I was reading the article that that the article made clear to me is i i can't look at that curriculum and think okay well what what african-american voices are coming to the top of this curriculum but what you know black female voices are coming to the top because that's not the same thing they're not going to get the same thing from from those voices or what for my kids too like i have refugees like what refugee voices are coming to the top um and so i for me, that was a really powerful part of that article and, and looking in at my instruction and then also in it, our whole school and our district and this curriculum piece of what is that doing for our students and then their beliefs and their ideas for their own futures.
3: I, 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 I failed to say that I'm also doing like critical literacy. So we're looking at things right now through a black feminist thought hip hop feminism and um, I introduced womanism today because I asked them several months ago, had they read Raisin in the Sun and they hadn't. So um, I was going like, okay, let me find a movie, but I guess it's February. So because it's Black History Month is now available. So I kind of just topsy-turvy what I was doing and we started watching uh, Raisin in the Sun today. And I wanted them specifically to look at um, the women in the story, right? And look in the intergenerational relationships. What did they buy you? how is womanist even a part of this, right? How do they support humanity and solidarity between black men? And then even just from that black feminist thought, how do they push back against oppression? Um, but you have to kind of be very much intentional with those type of questions and with that type of lens so that, you know, the girls can see themselves like with the character beneath her who wants to be a doctor. And in the 1950s, you know, as her brother said, why should, Why can't you be you want to help people why can't you be a nurse like all the rest of the girls like she was thinking too far in advance and society tends to do that to black girls like no you can't be a doctor you could be a nurse um you know you can't be a scientist or you can't be an engineer but you know you can do this other thing like maybe you could be a technician in a hospital as opposed and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with those but that should not be your glass ceiling, right? That should not be where you stop at because society has limit you to that particular ceiling top when the sky can be the, the limit. Um, and then the other piece that um, I, I was thinking about was um, social economics of, of how, social economics and values in which our girls aspire to do things. And I remember, in here it says that someone study said it didn't necessarily um, go with social economics. And I disagree with that. I push back on that somewhat because in my 25 years of education and still being in touch with lots of former students, I know that makes the world of difference. If if there's a value or you have access to provide your child with other things outside than the school can offer you. Um, your child or your daughter in particular, that's the difference. So, you know, my daughter is an artist. And since nine, she wanted to sell, she wanted to be a fashion designer, but I was able then to get sewing lessons. We were able to do like the more college art some Saturday things. All of those little things cost, you know, a little extra. So economics does play a part in here because someone has to help cultivate those things, right? Um, and then I wonder about like the demographic of my girls at school currently now like families don't have those additional funds to uh, shape some of their dreams. Um, and then that that stops and it puts them in a place that, as you probably found uh, Jennifer that kind of limits where they want to go by the time they are in 11th to 12th grade because they don't have certain things, not that it's impossible to get it but. We all know that with support and encouragement, you're you, you could get lifted a lot faster than um, without. So um I, I just, you know, that that stood out to me. Um and I'll just last thing, I did ask two of my friends who are black women who are both engineers and one's in a part associate partner at her firm. And I wanted to know about their black girl dream and what drove them to their aspirations just from reading this, right? And I So I reached out to them and one, um, her mother was a teacher, couldn't afford it, but she found free programs to push her along, right? In engineering. And the other one who comes from a family of her mother and her aunts and uncles are all college graduates. So the expectation again is there. And again, I thought a lot of that was contradictory to many of the students that I've come across with over the years. Okay, I'm gonna shut up now. (laughs)
2: Thank you for all of those thoughts. Uh, I, I love hearing people. It's rare that you get to hear people in conversation about your work. And so it's really interesting. I am loving this. Um, I think, Angie, a couple of the things you said resonated with me. As soon as you mentioned the Raising in the Sun, I thought about the daughter and about how she had these aspirations to be a doctor and the ways that her father, and I think even the guy she was dating at the time, uh, had these really limiting ideas about who she could be, right? And then I began to think about the ways that history has taught us about Black girls dreaming and what is and is not possible for futures. And so even thinking about the differences in representation, right? So we have a movie like Hidden Figures that shows us the ways that these stories have been silenced and Black girls' aspirations have been silenced. And then all it took to be able to get to these spaces, right? There's also something like The Help, which is a very limiting movie in determining what Black women and Black girls are able to do. Uh, Both are very important narratives, but just present Black girls' futures in very different ways. And so I think history has a lot to teach us about where we are presently and what's possible for a future. I also think when you were mentioning, you know, socioeconomics, it is, it has become interesting for me to think about, I mean, in thinking about futures and career aspirations, it's absolutely something that's tied up into future and dreaming. And so even some of the girls that I was working with had dreams of being hairdressers and owning salons. And I think a lot of times we're taught that those are not valuable aspirations. And that's not true. I worked at a hair salon both in undergrad and during my doc program trying you know, to make ends meet. And all of the science that goes behind being a beautician and <laughs> is, is incredible. And so why are we not having those conversations about the multiple knowledges that it takes to be able to be a master in these kinds of fields? I think also, when we think about what are schools doing you mentioned that your friend's mom was able to find funds and resources i am very curious about how schools are partnering not even partnering but being part of the community right so if if we are hearing these are the aspirations from students which first takes listening to them to determine to hear what it is they want to do If we're hearing that students want to do these things and schools often have access to resources, if not resources themselves, how are teachers who are maybe able to navigate these spaces a bit better acting as, uh, oh, I can't think of the word right now, acting as sort of liaisons uh, or bridges between the resources and the child's future to, to help us get to those spaces? And Jen, when you were talking about identities, it was really salient to me to think about the fact that you know it's not just enough to bring in stories about Black folks, but to think really intentionally about whose stories we're bringing in. So yes, there are Black girls. What does it mean to be a Black girl and an immigrant or a refugee? How are those stories also being brought in? How are we thinking about the multiple and complex identities? of our Black students because Black folks are not monolithic. Everyone has a different story. And so how are these stories being portrayed through curriculum and who we're bringing into our classrooms either as guest speakers, as volunteers uh, to to introduce students to, how are are we introducing our students to these, these very different stories and paths and experiences to open up spaces for them to dream even larger about what it is they might want for their future. I'm gonna stop (laughs) and turn it over to Dr. Turner at this point.
1: Yeah, I I just want to echo what Autumn was saying about how wonderful it is to hear um, you all respond to this work and really think about it, engage with it. Um, It's just wonderful to hear. So I just had a couple of things just to add on to what Autumn was saying. Um, So Jen, when you were talking about creating a space that's safe for girls, Black girls in particular, but for students to share. um, It reminded me immediately of working with um, Tamika and Malia in 2018. And we've actually continued working with these young ladies. So we've had the the privilege of meeting with them in 2019, 2020, we're hoping to meet with them. They are, uh, depending on how, you know, things are going with COVID, things are so uncertain, but they would be technically moving into a college year unless they're gonna go into a gap year. And so we've had now a range of experiences with Tamika and Malia but it reminded me right away of um, when I spoke with Tamika in 2018 and she wanted to be the dancer and and or the child psychologist and I remember thinking as she was telling me like you got to choose and if you choose you need to be the child psychologist like that's where you need to be like dancer like those two things seem so radically different to me and I remember coming back to that counseling background of no judgment, this is what she desires. It's really about listening to what is their joy. And for me, that just reminds me of Patina Love's work and bringing in black joy because so many black girls are facing different kinds of oppressions in their families um, with their partners, with society in general, they're going to school and having to face so much um, and so to to tap into what brings them joy and to give them the space to actually defines their joy defines that healing for them what what um, helps them to to be better do better think better. Um, when we talk about decolonizing our curriculum, a lot of it is also getting helping Black girls in particular to decolonize their minds and their hearts. What brings them that joy? Um, What is their passion? What do they really wanna do? And I think when you can get Black girls in particular to, to speak about those things, you turn the tide for them in terms of what schooling is, in terms of what education is, what society tells them. Um, even sometimes what their families are telling them, you, you really can shift that thinking because you're giving them the space to be, to just be human, to just be fully human and to say, this is what I want out of my life. This is what I want out of my future and to withhold that judgment and then really to help them, to help them feel supported in that and affirmed in that. I think is really, um, it's something that I struggled with from then on, Um, and I had other girls that said the same thing. In another study, there was a nine-year-old girl that wanted to be a bus driver and a doctor, and again, I was like, what? Like, how did he, but that young lady was all about community uplift and bringing people, you know, helping people. She was like, I'm going to drive the kids to school, and then I'm going to go to the ER and help people there, and who am I to say that's not possible? There are so many possible futures. So who am I to say to judge her and say, you need to pick one um, and the one that I think would bring more money or that I think would be more helpful to her life. And I think that's so much a part of black um, self-determination um, and that piece of black joy, I really do. For, for black girls, I think it, that joyfulness that who are you and who do you wanna be um, can help them in their romantic relationships, in other kinds of relationships as well, because it really is about defining who you are as black women. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to say and giving that space. And then when Angie was talking about social class, I think uh, I agree 100% that money can help lift um, people like girls up. And so they are able to have their dreams nurtured then. I think what we were responding to was some of the research that would say things like, well, black girls have lower aspirations because they come from impoverished backgrounds or households, or um, you know, black kids in general don't have high aspirations when compared to white children. Um, or when compared to Asian children. And so there was always this, especially in psychology, there was always this comparative notion that your SAS was gonna bring your, you down, your race and your gender gonna bring you down. If you were a black girl, you were in a double bind. You were bound by your race, you were bound by your gender. And if you had social class, you might as well you know, give it up. And so that's when we were starting to kind of speak back to that. Um, there are girls from, The projects that want to be doctors, so you you can't kind of say, well, because they're from a certain social class, they're going to dream in this way. And so we were responding to that particular aspect of the literature, saying black girls from these backgrounds dream in this way. They're limited. They're lower. um, They are, you know, not as fully developed and. not as productive almost. It was almost like capping them there at, they're not gonna be as productive because they didn't come from this great family that has all these advantages. So I absolutely agree with you in terms of the money helping to cultivate. Um, but we were just speaking back to some of the, the psychology literature that was saying, well, black girls are doomed from the start because they're black and they're girls and you put them from a lower class. And I grew up in the area that you're talking about. Um, so there would be many people that wouldn't have said I would become a professor, for example, that just wouldn't be what people would imagine of me. Um, And so I think that's what we were speaking about, but I do believe um, and agree with you that money does make a difference in terms of cultivating um,
3: black girls' dreams. So, and I think I I annotated this several times reading this, and a big question for me then is, how do you get the masses to understand black girl dream, right? How do you get the masses to understand black joy, right? And because that's the frustrating part for me um, is getting folks to realize that your students, your girls have voices, that they have dreams. How do we help, you know, cultivate and shape that? How do we, how do we, how do we implement humanizing pedagogy so that we can hear what their aspirations are? And so the large problem for me is that these are not, um, what I'm asking and what needs to happen are not normal practices, right? Um, most people are, you know, you know, like this whole, like the banking education thing. I'm giving you this and you collect it and regurgitate it. I don't care nothing about what you are, what you wanna be, what you have to say. You just take what I give, don't question it, and then spool it back out for you know multiple choice tests or whatever. Um, so that's, that's my large problem is getting the masses to understand just that. How do you get the masses to check their privileges? How do you get the masses to say, you know what? This isn't all about me. Um, how do you get the masses to understand that what I learned in school some 20, 30, 40 years ago needs to be dismantled? And and, and I need to look at it through a different lens. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with everything like in this article in terms of like, you know, uplifting uplifting their voices and, and their aspirations and things that but the reality of it for me is that like it's gonna happen in individual classes, it's gonna happen in, in you know, things, organizations like Tough Girls here in Philly, where it's about mentoring um, black and brown girls. It's gonna happen in silos and I want it to happen everywhere.
2: I love this question and I love it because it's something I think I struggle with. I actually just had a conversation with a mentor this morning about this. And I think on the one hand, I am at a place where I'm sick of trying to convince people of my humanity. I'm sick of trying to convince people that my voice matters and that my joy is authentic and matters. Uh, and I don't think we're ever, as long as we live in this white supremacist world, I don't think that's a thing we're going to convince people of and that's just the reality of it. And so I think on, in, on some level, this is where my work on like self-love comes in and teaching black girls that it's okay to just be. Right, You don't have to work to strive to convince anyone that you are worthy of love, love yourself, love your black girl body and your black girl brain and just be, be joyful, um, be all of the things that you want to be. I also think that as researchers, we have a responsibility to elevate the voices of black educators. I think so often research speaks specifically uh, about the work of white educators, one, because that's the majority of the field, but two, to them, especially in implications and such. And I think that work is important, especially as we think about who is teaching our Black and brown children. I also think there are, are and always have been so many dope Black teachers doing great work for our students. And you are one of them, right? And so Bettina Love talks about co-conspirators. And so at this point, I think it's important to not only look at the work of Black teachers doing the work to to, uh, decolonize Black students' minds and decolonize their curriculum, but also to look at the work of white co-conspirators. Who is doing this work with us? Who is standing beside us in doing this work? Who is listening to us as we do this work together? And as we do that, I think we will no longer be concerned about convincing people, but doing the work so that these students at the end of the day uh, can live the joyful futures that they want. And to borrow from something you said a few weeks ago, Angie, to watch them play their instruments right (laughs) in public loudly and boldly, and to do so just knowing, just being so
3: very self-assured. So, and I don't feel, if I'm monopolizing, just tell me to be quiet, right? Um, but obviously, this is something very passionate. I'm passionate about as well. Um, so, from from a researcher's point of view, I, I understand that, right? But I've, I'm also considering um, how does then that researcher point of view come down to all levels of teacher preparation, because we all know that eighty percent of teachers come in are white and female, right? So how do we transfer that over? Because I've had a couple of student teachers, and you know, pretty much everything they had to learn in college was like throw this out because this this is this is not what we're going to do. Like we we need to do some yes, culturally responsive, some humanizing teaching. We have to make sure that our that the students are uplifted and they see themselves and yada yada yada. Um, but they're not coming in to education with this know-how, with this understanding. They are still being taught that like European canons of of literature are the go-to texts. And then on the other flip side of that, I have colleagues who, unlike they're completely um, uh, contradictory to their own statements and tell students to learn and read, but they don't learn and read themselves, right? So if teachers aren't lifelong learners. If they're not reading to stay abreast or how to figure out how to be reflective in their own practice. I, and I think that's where my frustration comes in that because I'm unapologetically black and I'm unapologetically black in my English class and my students have become very much aware of that. And they are also unapologetically black in, in, in the space in, in my classroom, physical or virtual, virtual but The reality of it is they're going to leave my classroom and they're going to go to the teacher next door who is who has has said loudly and proudly in professional development he understands his privilege he likes his privilege and there's just no way that he would sacrifice his privilege for anybody else so he's an educator that should not be in front of any child you know black white brown or anybody so that's what my frustration. I, I don't want to convince him, but I, I also know that I am one teacher and we're the new teachers coming in and the teachers who are already there and the old teachers are about to go out the door. There's no reflective um, in their in their pedagogy at all to bring about this change. And then we have school districts that mandate professional developments that are totally out of line or they say, this is, this is what we wanna do. And I'll just speak of school district, Philadelphia, they're talking about social emotional learning and cultural responsiveness and equity on paper, but their practices are still saying the complete opposite. So yeah, that, that's, that's where, my, where my biggest frustration comes in is, is more systemic and then also personal where people need to be reflective.
1: Angie, I agree. I, I hear that frustration and I, I feel like your words are a real call um, to teacher educators like myself to change the practices that we have, to move away from some of that canon. And, and a lot of it is that teacher educators, like you said, many of them have not been in the classroom for years. They don't know the children that are in classrooms now. So they we have faculty don't even want to do PowerPoint. How are they going to like talk to kids about digital literacies when they don't even want to, you know, they can barely create one. And so it's like, you've got to retool, retrain. How do you change teachers hearts and minds to do that? And so a pre-service, we need a better job. We need to do a better job of selecting um, folks that have that kind of mentality where it's a praxis oriented vision of what teaching should be. Um, And thinking of liberatory practices and you know we're we're not doing that good of a job and it takes it takes actually educators like you, Angie, I don't know if you want to publish you should present. Rally these teachers around you because that is the kind of energy we need and I'm not saying you can do it all, but I also don't want you to get burned out you are making a difference, and I think. um, That's one of the things I tell my pre service teachers look you might have a scripted curriculum you find spaces and places you pull out a poem you pull out Lucille Clifton we read that. The poem won't you celebrate with me, and that is a black girl poem for you talking about. Uh, Being between starshine and clay and making who you are, not having a model, being born non-white and female. And that is a poem for you in terms of Black girl joy and self-definition, self-valuation, everything um, that Patricia Hill Collins and so many bell hooks so many folks talk about. Um, And so we talk about when can you use this? This is never gonna be in your curriculum. When can we use this? And so we talk about times and spaces in the day where they can um, steal that time away almost to, to put these kinds of pieces into place. Um, you could have your students and this is something that we bring up in the article do things with playlists but you know what it's making me think teachers need to do their own playlists like what are what what list of music actually moves you to teach and if there ain't none don't teach because you need to come on out you know and so sometimes it's almost like you have to get teachers like you're saying to reflect upon their practices but it's also that some people just shouldn't be teaching. It's just plain up straight up. They shouldn't be teaching. How do we move them out? How do we bring in new teachers that may be more open to some of the things that we're talking about? And they might have come, like you said, from these programs that just don't give that kind of information. And I know a lot of my pre-service teachers want to know because they wanna feel like they are experts. They know what they're doing on Monday morning, but at the same time, it makes some of them so rigid and so structured and so unwilling to listen to black girls or any other voices. Um, and so I, I think you're you're calling to teach educators, but it's, it's a call in terms of the teaching force that is out there, you all make a difference for sure. And um, you can publish, you can present, get out there, get your voice out there, because it really does matter. And enlist those students to help you because they are strong voices as well. And I take a lot of inspiration from, the students that I work with, like a Tamika and Malia, it keeps me going. It keeps me, you know, heading to that campus another day. Um, and so I, I just encourage you: it may not come soon, but it can come. And it's almost that hope that you have to have—the hope that we're telling these girls you can see the future and achieve it. It's the same hope that we have to have as educators—that we can change the
0: system. One thing I appreciate—I really appreciate the exchange and the and the. Uh kind of wrestling with some of the the problems we see in schools systemically I think the article highlights a ton of them and one of the things that really struck me about a little bit about this conversation but also about the piece was just you know the need to listen right especially if we think about curriculum being adopted in a district and oh boy what are they gonna tell everybody they got to teach next and I I really I think so many times in a in a in a inspiring article like this, there's sort of explicit praxis you can take out of it, things you can specifically do. And I just thought the ways of listening to these girls were fascinating and can stretch like a teacher's practice practice and make you reflect on how well do I listen? Because because I just made notes about the, you know, the artifacts you got in terms of the digital dream boards in 30 minutes. It's like there's something that ought to be really replicable there. And then um, the way you kind of structured that session, of course, you know teachers don't immediately become researchers with two ki- two students at a time. but savvy veteran teachers can think about wait, how do I sometimes set up structured listening that also can be part of the curriculum where you you know I was just fascinated how you worked in Jacqueline Woodson's work as inspiration to you but then at the same time, you also were able to highlight with those those girls in conversation the way, Google can tell them the wrong thing. Google can tell them to be realistic and not to dream big. And I really felt like your ways of listening here, just in the the gathering of these artifacts, is really something that English teachers can unpack. And I think your article talks a lot about how why we might unpack it and why we might, when we do that intentional listening, we'll uncover all kinds of literacies that we're not spending, that we could spend more time on.
1: Yeah, I agree, Joe. I mean, I have, I'm so grateful that I was working with Autumn um, throughout this project because I hadn't thought of the digital spaces in those ways um, in terms of the the listening that you can do with um, young black girls. And because I always thought of digital literacies honestly as very independent, isolated um, kinds of uh, tools that you use to kind of do things on your own. Um, And even though they did do it, we tried to create this environment where they were listening to music, they were kind of kicking back and um, eating and relaxing. And I think that helped with it, but it was the listening, it was the ability to also um, provide these different um, spaces to think about that, not only the dream board, but the playlists. Um, and then just the interview itself, they look back at their drawings. We had a timeline that they did at this first interview where they actually charted out for us um, their sort of progression over time from the twenty, the 20 uh, 2012 kinds of aspirations moving forward. And so for us, multimodality was really one of those um, for, it was like affording us so many different spaces to not only gather that data, but like you were saying Joe, to listen to them and to elicit the kinds of um, aspects that made them joyful in thinking about their futures in thinking about what they wanted to become, what they desired. Um, that, that for me was really, really interesting um, to think of the life literacies that they were talking about well beyond their career, um, thinking about what it's like to have a house and make money and um, to, to start to talk about those things and then to see them talking about them and hear them talking about them. Those same images <laughs> pop up every year when we talk with them. Um, and so Autumn and I have had these interesting conversations. Is that capitalism? Or, and I've been wrestling, we have wrestled with this. Like, are they just like, just echoing some of the capitalistic kind of orientations towards money? Um, and and what does that mean? Is it indicative of their own social class? Because they are at a higher social class um, than other girls. And so we've been wrestling with this, um, but at the same time, we want them to wrestle with it. And we, we encourage them to, to share what they want, whether that is a lot of money and a house, or you know, or not, it's not that we. I don't know. It's a it's a space where I am hoping that they come away thinking these are some of the images that I want to see, that I am anticipating. I'm putting forward. I'm putting it out there. And I know there's a verse in the Bible that talks about write the vision, make it plain. And so I grew up in the church. And for me, that was you you name your vision, you claim what you want, you make that plain. And so uh, even though, you know, we might wonder about some of the things that they want from their lives, we certainly, you know, want to make them feel comfortable and safe speaking about those things and trying to speak those things into existence. Um, and, and the listening has been hard for me, especially in terms of thinking about some of these. But I, I've come away thinking, but what kid doesn't want to have money in a big house? Like, <laughs> is that really something that kids in America kind of don't think they want? I mean, I, and so the, these things make me question that what, the, what is this saying to me as I have a pa- I'm a, a parent of, of boys that are this age, what is this saying to me? What messages about money and happiness and career have I given to my own boys? Um, And so that these conversations can definitely be in classrooms, I've had teachers that told me that, you know, they started some of these conversations after reading things like this, and it is fascinating to hear kids saying that money is going to buy them happiness or make them happy, Um, and for that conversation to come forward um, is important because Otherwise kids are like, why am I here? Why am I learning about this? I don't care. I don't wanna pass the test. None of this is important to me. So why am I reading about this or doing these things if they don't connect to what I want to see for my future? And if I wanna see these things and how is it gonna help me get there? What I'm learning in ninth grade, what I'm learning in 12th grade, what I'm learning in first grade, you know, how did these things help me get there? And so many black kids especially don't see any connections at all between what they're learning and what, they're li- what they want their lives to be like. Um, and so I, I just, again, yeah, the, the listening is powerful and it's something that I've had to learn along the way doing
3: this research. So w- what I wrote down, uh, Jennifer, while you were talking was that there's an underlying inference that teachers or adults or staff members w- have to do a couple of things. Gotta build relationships right and we take that for granted but we can't take that for granted because not all teachers are building relationships and when you build relationships you listen that's a part of the relationship building i'm building trust i listen and so yeah that's a we take that for granted but for a lot of folks it, it doesn't happen it doesn't you know i'm the i'm the adult you're the child and, and that's, the, that's the part of the relationship. And you only get to know who they really are by those relationships, right? And um, right before the winter break, I asked my students to um, uh, collaborate on a Spotify playlist for me. I just wanted to hear what they listened to, right? And just to see where they were, where they were in their music. And I'm trying to tell you, I was so surprised that um I didn't hear the typical things like I got some really great jazz music and I got some some um other music and I was just like oh okay look at them you know and so you know some music was typical what I thought I were but then it was lots that I just was just very surprising so I had like about four or five hours they kept saying can I be more than one song as many as you want so I had a you know nice time listening to them and then I would go back to check who who submitted this one and so forth and I'm like oh maybe you know even see them um in a different point and uh one of my students said to me Jasmine says oh my god Miss Crawford I love this idea like you really you're really gonna listen to what we want to listen to I said yeah I really want to listen to what you listen to she says oh my god I love this and um I mean, I've had kids make playlists before for other projects, but not. It wasn't the same type of thing. So that was just a beautiful experience. Um, and then in this virtual setting, some days we just have to have busted up with Crawford, and we just we just talk about whatever is on their mind. I talk about what's on my mind, or you know, they give me um, recommendations for Netflix, and that usually jumps a whole springboard of things like. Why are you not watching this? And this is what this is about. And then kids who never talk in class are talking because they're talking about what it is that interests them. And um, you know, I learned one of my kids was a, a life um, a lifeguard, and I was like, really? You know, so you know, just sometimes you just gotta push back and say, you know what, bump this curriculum, and I'm gonna just have some conversations with kids to learn who they are. And, and what they wanna do, even more so than I've been doing all along.
0: Well, I appreciate, Angie, you sharing those examples of how you intentionally listen to students and sometimes take, you know, take departures from, from what people perceive as curriculum to do important you know, relationship building and, and uh, you know, intentional listening. Um, as is often the case with these marginal syllabus conversations, the hour has flown by. And so I just appreciate everyone's contributions and I'd like to ask for just kind of a quick whip around for sort of a last thing or a thing we'll remember from this conversation or from the text. And I think this has given us a terrific um, jumping off point for asking to asking people to annotate the article online socially so lots to dig into. So what's one thing maybe that will stick with you from the conversation or from the
5: text. If it's okay for me to just quickly jump in and first of all, just thank everyone again for, for joining today. I'm now sheets deep in my notes and I just wanted to, again, um, as the, my, my quick takeaways, um, appreciate um, Autumn, what you mentioned around, again, elevating the voices of black educators. That has been a primary motivation for particularly organizing this 2021 syllabus, which is explicitly aligned to the Black Lives Matter at schools year of purpose call to action. Um, and, and so um, if, if in this, Project and and even this conversation is one kind of humble contribution to to that work. Um, I just want to thank again everyone for bringing their wisdom uh, into this. Uh, And and again, thank you all for for joining us today.
4: Um, I would just say for me, um, there's so much I can't like I'm taking away, but I think first, first and foremost is, um, like my place in the classroom and 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 my first priority which is those the kids in front of me and and making it a place where that the joy piece really stood out to me it was something that I took a note on before our conversation and then it came up in the conversation about how can like I just thought it was so amazing to ask those gir- the girls what they wanted to be when they were nine and they still had some of those same beliefs they had just added to it which which is incredible like that's what I would want to see I would want to see my kids just adding this huge opportunity, like list of opportunities, um, and not losing that, one, that piece of joy. Like that's the piece that brought me joy. That's what I'm going to keep on my list. You know, maybe I don't want to be a vet anymore, but I do want to have, I'm going to have a million dogs and, and I'm not going to lose that joy. And so as an educator, um, I, especially at high school, I think is probably where we start to see a lot of loss of joy. And so, making sure that that's just as important as the curriculum. That's just as important as any, any lesson I could teach in a day. Um, Like Angie was saying, like, put that stuff aside, um, whatever it takes for, for a couple of days or, uh, you know, every quarter or whatever to, to give space and time to that. And then the other piece I was thinking, Angie, when you were talking about like the kids leaving you and going somewhere else, and then they're going to face this person but what it made me think of was probably what what you were doing and what, what a lot of us hope to do for kids is giving them that voice so that when they go on, they're thinking, no, like Miss Crawford t- showed me this or Miss Crawford made me believe this. So when I go here, I'm not going to believe what this guy says. And so maybe we don't change him or we can't get him out or other mm-hmm. educators like him, but we can change how they impact the kids. So that's. Nice. That I'm walking away with.
3: All right. Um, I didn't that one word thing doesn't obviously doesn't work for me, but uh <laughs> either. Um, so I was thinking uh relationships, uplifting, listening, black joy, black love, black self-care are my words. <laughs>
2: I just wanted to start by thanking you all for having us and allowing us to uh, engage in this conversation with you. Uh, I think when I think about what has, what I'm taking away from this conversation, I'm thinking a lot about this idea of listening and how we are often taught in teacher education programs, to listen, when as, especially in English, to listen when students respond to literature, but the listening doesn't stop there. And so I'm thinking about how we're expanding it and listening, truly listening to who students are. And also just always love talking about Black joy and Black love and Black care. And so those are the things I'm walking away with today.
1: And I'll say um, I'm walking away with just a renewed um, appreciation for teachers, what you all are doing, Angie and Jen. Um, and I'll encourage you, those students will take away what you're doing with Netflix and Spotify way more than they will taken, you know, away from some of the literature. You are building their future-making literacies through talking with them and having them share with you. Cause I think those are the literacies we forget about, the listening, the speaking. We don't, we don't think about some of that. And sharing for, about Netflix, Spotify, building those relationships. To me, that's all part of the language arts. If you really um, frame it a little differently, you are doing the curriculum. It might not be the curriculum, but you are doing future making kinds of practices in your classroom. And that's really what the kids want to take away is what are the literacy practices that protect and advance my desires, my future, my joy. It's the Netflix and Spotify for sure. So I encourage you to continue doing those kinds of things because it's not, um, it's just not inconsequential. It is the the real essence of teaching for, for so many Black kids.
0: Thank you so much. Again, thanks to, especially to our readers, Angie and Jen, we so appreciate you coming and sharing your thinking and making us a part of your teaching day, especially you, Angie, you're juggling a few things. So thanks. And then- uh, I'm sorry Dr. Jennifer Turner and Autumn Griffin, we cannot thank you enough for uh, sharing this article with us. Um, Brown Girls Dreaming, Adolescent Black Girls Future Making Through Multimodal Representations of Race, Gender, and Career Aspirations will be online and accessible for participant annotations during, starting in the month of March. And so those of you who are networked with the National Writing Project can be looking at those NWP collab channels for information about how to uh, annotate publicly. And of course, if you follow the hashtag marginal syllabus, you'll get all kinds of information about how you can read this and mark it up online with us. And so thanks again, everybody. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP NWP.
5: NWP. NWP. Radio.